Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good evening. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Joan B. Kroc Institute for Peace and Justice. My name is Milburn Line. I'm the executive director here at the IPJ, part of the Kroc School of Peace Studies at the University of San Diego. As we celebrate our 10th anniversary, I think the late Mrs. Kroc, whose endowment gift made this lecture series possible, would be pleased with our program tonight that addresses justice challenges in post-conflict scenarios, a theme which resonates with ongoing work of the IPJ in Guatemala, Nepal, and West Africa. Now to introduce tonight's speaker, I'd like to bring to the stage Dr. D. Aker, the Deputy Director of the Institute, whose guidance on our regional work in Nepal and other parts of Asia, and our thematic work on gender, and youth in conflict, in conflict prevention and resolution has made the Institute a widely recognized leader in these fields. Please, Dee. Thank you, Milburn. Um, as we celebrate not only the 10th anniversary of the Institute, we're also particularly pleased with our continuing outreach to women in peacebuilding worldwide and to young people seeking to play a positive role in peacebuilding and social justice in their communities. So it's especially an honor to have you here this evening, Ambassador, because we're keenly aware of the attention that you have played, specifically advancing uh, for women uh, victims of crimes against their violence, I mean, their crimes against humanity, crimes against... You might want to say that for me, and we'll, you know, work on it. But you get the idea. We're appreciative of what you do. It's better than Democratic Congress. Um, (laughs) Is that a little inside joke? Um, But we are particularly appreciative of the history of working with troubled youth and representing women so well when they are caught in these situations. As we come upon the 100th anniversary of the International Women's Day, Uh, In just over two weeks, we thank you for your clarion call for accountability and justice that includes addressing women's specific atrocities in Sierra Leone, the former Yugoslavia, Cambodia, and so many other distraught homelands of our women peacemakers who've been recognized here and lived with us here at the Institute for Peace and Justice. Um, And during our Global Court of Accountability a couple of years ago with Justice Goldstone, and uh, members of the ICC who came to talk about this. Believe me, you were here in spirit and essence, and you've continued the, the, the work, and we're greatly appreciative. Your commitment to exposing and addressing the often ignored gender-based crimes in these settings allows such women and survivors to feel supported and to be better heard in their political and legal atro- uh, advocacy and building their own societies again in possible access to retribution, we can talk about that, and most assuredly in the essential inclusion of gender issues within negotiations and initiatives for women in armed conflicts and recovery in post-conflict situations called for in the United Nations Security Council Resolution 1325. Your voice and pioneering legal strategies deployed to put war criminals on notice, whether prosecuting a former head of state like Charles Taylor for crimes uh, and actions in a neighboring country, or taking on the media magnets in Rwanda for calling neighbors to kill neighbors, has inspired and in some cases reignited belief that justice 
though complex and elusive, is worth seeking and may help deter similar future sufferings, and that men and women can work together in this process. Well, there's so much more to discover about your journey. Mr. Ambassador, I do trust that our audience tonight has had time to read your brief bio in the program, so I want to invite you to our podium to help us with the gnawing question of how do we achieve justice for those most dehumanized, demoralized, or completely lost in the crimes of genocide and war? How do we support the precarious progress you and a few others have created through the Rome Statutes and uh, programs like that and information like that. Now that there is some capacity to address gender-based crime, how do we get the follow-up ordered for victims in terms of reparations after convictions by the International Criminal Court, which are associates at the uh, Hague, at the International uh, Women's Initiatives for Peace for Gender Justice, have called for here on this stage just last fall? Please advise us on how to better chart the course to justice, a justice that can bring peace to individuals as well as our nations. May I invite the students and colleagues and friends here tonight to join me in welcoming U.S. Ambassador-at-Large for War Crimes Issues, Stephen J. Rapp. Thank you very much, Dee, for that, that wonderful introduction, uh, uh, which uh, reminded me again, though, though the news that I receive almost every day uh, also reminds me uh, of the challenge of achieving justice, uh, in particular for women in, in zones of armed conflict, and, and, and the word of events in North and South Kivu, where, uh, where women are attacked and raped and, and enslaved, and, and where there is sadly too little accountability, and where the message that all of us have tried to deliver of, of never again and their consequences uh, has not yet been delivered with sufficient effectiveness. And uh, it's part of my challenge in my current job uh, to make what we've been able to achieve in some small measure in these international institutions matter uh, at the level of, of each community and each individual. But before I go to where I think international justice uh, needs to progress in the future, I want to stop for a moment and reflect on, on where it's been and the developments that we've seen in, uh, in, in a relatively brief few years, in, in years that span just about longer than my own lifetime. I had an opportunity to do that about three months ago, and it was, uh, it was something that uh, at one time in my life I could have only dreamed of, uh, but it was an opportunity to represent the United States of America on the 65th anniversary of the opening of the Nuremberg trials in Nuremberg, Germany. Uh, the courtroom at Nuremberg, which many of you are familiar with, has actually remained a, a, a courtroom of regular trials and hasn't been open to the public uh, and there hasn't been a, a site for commemoration of the historic events that happened there in that courthouse until this year when it was established by the city of Nuremberg and the, and the government of Germany. And they invited uh, representatives of each of the four powers that prosecuted the leaders of Nazi Germany uh, to come there on the 65th anniversary of the opening uh, to address the people of, of, of Nuremberg and uh, 
Uh, there were also, of course, representatives of the German government, but I was honored to join the Russian Foreign Minister Sergei, Lav- Sergei Lavrov and, and representatives of the United Kingdom and France uh, to deliver an address. And um, uh, it was, for me, a, a moving experience. When I was a prosecutor in the Rwanda Tribunal, my friends uh, from Australia and New Zealand would always laugh at me. They'd say, whenever you go to court rap, you want to deliver a quote from Justice Jackson. You Americans must think he's great. I said, he is, and he was. Uh, uh, Justice Jackson was uh, a sitting justice of the United States Supreme Court, uh, former attorney general under Roosevelt, who was asked by Truman, uh, without leaving the Supreme Court, to take a year off and to go to Nuremberg and lead the American uh, side of the, of, of the prosecution. And it fell to him to open uh, the great trial uh, at Nuremberg on November 21st and appear before the judges of the four allied powers and at his side a dock uh, with 21 Nazi leaders led by, by Hermann Goering and the, need, the leaders, the surviving leaders of each part of what had been a a powerful German Reich, a Nazi machine that had killed six million Jews and plunged Europe into a war with tens of millions of casualties. And uh, it was an opportunity, I think maybe the first time in 65 years since the words had been spoken by Justice Jackson to briefly repeat a few of the things that he said that day. And the one that, that I think most of us that have followed it will all remember was really the second sentence of his opening, which was that the wrongs that we seek to condemn and punish have been so calculated, so malignant, so devastating that civilization cannot bear their being ignored because it cannot survive their being repeated. But he went beyond that and talked about what justice required in the wake of those tremendous atrocities. And that was something really new in the world. And that was that that men of great power, not just low-level individuals, but those that had exercised the power of a state could be held to justice. As he said, the law shall not stop with the punishment of petty crimes by little people. It must also reach men who possess themselves of great power and who make deliberate and concerted use of it to set in motion evils which leave no home in the world untouched. But he also said something about the rather unpredictable possibilities of these enterprises of of seeking justice and, and a warning that resonates still when he said that we must never forget that the record on which we judge these defendants today is the record upon which history will judge us tomorrow. To pass these defendants a poison chalice is to put it to our lips as well. I, um, in my speech to the, to the group that day, said, and I, and I believe that what happened at, at Nuremberg the idea that the great could be held to account uh, for atrocities against ordinary men and women uh, was a day of immense historic importance. 
before that German audience, I remembered a quote from Goethe, who had been a a witness at Valmy in 1792, uh, where a citizen army had vanquished the forces of of imperial and and regal Europe. And uh, he had said what could be said of what happened at Nuremberg uh, from this place and from this day began a new era in the history of the world. Now, Nuremberg was significant, and it shows what, what trials can achieve. Uh, the trial largely turned on documentary evidence, uh, tens of thousands of pages of Germans, German-owned documents uh, uh, were presented, and as Jackson had said, the documents alone were sufficient to convict. Um, but uh, the film record was presented of the concentration camps uh, gathered by, by Bud and Stuart Schulberg uh, in a three-hour documentary that was shown in the first month of the trial. And, uh, and there was some live testimony, but uh, some of the live testimony appeared almost by accident. But the fact that it came in and that it was part of that historical record is of immense importance to us today when some crazy people would deny the reality of what happened. Uh, uh, there was the testimony of Rudolf uh, Franz Ferdinand Hoss, who'd been commandant of Auschwitz, uh, who'd been captured after the trial began in Poland and had been made available to the defense. And one of the defendants decided to call him as a witness. Uh, he'd been, Hoss had been commandant of Auschwitz. And uh, this defendant wanted uh, Hoss to say that uh, uh, that he, or this defendant's, or this attorney's defendant, had not been at Auschwitz. So Host came and, and so testified. But in the course of his testimony, he described what had happened at Auschwitz with matter-of-fact pride uh, to estimate that, two, that under his command, 2,500,000 victims had been executed uh, and exterminated by gassing and burnings and another half million had succumbed to starvation and disease, making a total dead of, of three million. And as he almost boasted, in the summer of 1944, we executed 400,000 Jews from Hungary alone. That was the record that was established in that trial. But of course, after that trial, and the subsequent proceedings, and there were a dozen other trials of other Nazi leaders that concluded by 1948 and 49. And after a similar proceeding in Tokyo, uh, there was no further examples of accountability on the international stage. Jackson had said in his address that this was a novel, an experimental idea. And, And some thought it would be the one and only because of the the horror of what the Nazis had wrought during World War II. And, of course, during the Cold War, when international institutions like the United Nations were were frozen uh, in terms of action, at least by the Security Council, by the fact that one side or the other uh, could veto action against even bad and atrocity-committing allies on their side, Uh, there was no expectation that anyone would face justice for atrocities at the international level. That changed after the end of the Cold War 
And with the, the atrocities that began to develop in a world with some of its moorings unstuck in the 1990s, first in, in the former Yugoslavia, where tens of thousands were victimized, murdered, and raped, driven from their homes in efforts to, to separate and to create uh, uh, greater Serbias or greater Croatias, ethnically pure uh, uh, countries uh, uh, built on the blood of, of others, with groups believing that what they were doing was justified by historic victimhoods that they had suffered. The world uh, responded finally in the United Nations Security Council with the creation of, uh, of an international tribunal. And many at the time said, uh, isn't this a poor substitute for doing something really effective? Indeed, as we remember in World War II, what brought the Nazis to the dock was the fact that they were defeated in a war, that their country was occupied. Uh, the, the trial was, was conducted by the four-party occupation, um, clearly with the power to arrest and to uh, enforce sentences and, and to enforce order. A super state, in essence, uh, on the part of uh, victorious allies. But in 1991, 92, 93, uh, the world was unwilling to put troops in harm's way in the former Yugoslavia, uh, to provide uh, peacekeepers with adequate uh, weapons and materiel, with, uh, with um, mandates under Chapter 7 that would have given them the power to protect individuals. Uh, and, uh, and atrocities uh, uh, became ongoing. We saw the bombardment of of, of Sarajevo, a city where we had watched uh, Torval and Dean, uh, you know, and the Olympics uh, uh, just nine years before, uh, where people shot down in the streets as they went shopping in an effort uh, by the Bosnian Serb forces to essentially uh, intimidate and destroy the, the Bosnian Muslim population uh, in that capital city. The response by the UN was to uh, to look at Nuremberg, at least a part of it, and say, let's have a court. Let's send in, uh, let's not send in soldiers, let's send in lawyers, and we'll see what happens. And I think people didn't have very high expectations about what be, what be accomplished. But um, I think all of us see uh, that because of the work, because of the evidence, because of the process, because of the cooperation that was eventually possible, um, justice could be done. No one thought that uh, when that began that, that President Slobodan Milosevic, of, uh, then the powerful president of uh, the Yugoslav Federation, uh, would someday be brought to justice, but that day arrived. A year later, when in Rwanda, even worse crimes occurred, the murder of 800,000 men, women, and children in a period of 100 days, a rate of killing that exceeded that of the Nazi death machine at its most efficient uh, security council, responding to demands that said, the African victims not count? What about justice in Africa? Of course, there hadn't been a willingness to provide Dallaire with reinforcements. There had even been calls to remove the small UN force that uh, was in Rwanda. 
But uh, after it was over, the idea of a tribunal was, uh, was the solution chosen, and one was established. And not much was expected of it either. Before it concludes its work, uh, to date it's brought people to trial from 26 different countries across Africa and Europe and North America, uh, including uh, uh, 12 members of the, the genocidal government, including the prime minister who was convicted of genocide, 13 military leaders, including the strong man, uh, Colonel Bagasora, who, who set the genocide in, in, in motion, and other leaders of the media, of the territorial administration, governors and mayors and business leaders and leaders of the clergy, um, Catholic and Seventh-day Adventist and Pentecostal and Anglicans and others that had participated and helped lead the killing. And uh, a few years after the establishment of these tribunals, when uh, violence erupted and continued in uh, Sierra Leone, uh, and the world then established a court even without the same powers as the, as the, uh, as the ICTR, the Rwanda Tribunal, or the ICTY had had, uh, a new institution, a, a mixture of, of both international and national elements, There was no expectation when it was created that it would succeed uh, beyond holding some rebel leaders to account, Uh, certainly that it wouldn't be able to achieve the arrest of a leader in another country who was uh, alleged to have been pulling the strings in the atrocity of Sierra Leone. But the day arrived that Charles Taylor uh, was flown into Freetown and then on to The Hague. And so these institutions each in a way, exceeded expectations. Of course, the question today in this lecture is, is justice for victims? And is this, is this business of holding a Taylor or a Milosevic or a Bagasora or a Kambanda uh, or a Goering, is this, is this justice for victims? I can only speak from my own experience actually putting cases on trial, meeting with victims in Rwanda and Sierra Leone, uh, bringing them to court, talking to their families, returning to their communities, uh, particularly in Sierra Leone, where we made, uh, uh, made probably the greatest success in, in our outreach program and in our efforts to, uh, to discuss in communities across the country what we were doing. To say that... Uh, what we did did not solve all of the challenges that the victims face. And, and meeting those challenges remains a, a major part of, of what I'm working on today and what I think all of us need to work on. But holding those responsible who set in motion these great evils that, as uh, Jackson discussed, Uh, touched so many, if not every home, uh, does have and did have great meaning to the victims. To say that what happened to them, what happened to those that died, to say to the women who were raped, to say to those whose children were, were taken away, to say to the child soldiers who were conscripted, to say to the bushwives who were enslaved, that they were victims 
and that others are responsible for their crimes is of immense significance. I was asked today by a group of students about the, our efforts to, uh, to achieve, which we were successful in doing, uh, a, the definition of a, of a new crime of, of forced marriage beyond even sexual slavery as, a, as another inhumane act. And the question was, well, you could prosecute them for rape and you can prosecute them for forced slavery. Why, why add to that uh, a prosecution for forced marriage as a crime against humanity is essentially another inhumane act and an unlisted crime, but you're allowed to prosecute other inhumane acts that are of equal gravity to those that are listed. And I said, you know, what was happening here is that women were, were taken not only sexually abused, not only uh, uh, torn from their communities and their families, uh, but they were also conscripted into a conjugal relation, made to, to be wives, made to be servants, but also made to be consorts, essentially stigmatized and held out. And at least everyone who looked at them said, that person's complicit in this crime. So they couldn't go home. Others could. Maybe, as we know, in crimes of sexual violence, it's hard to go home. People are stigmatized. There's difficulties. But in this one, it was even worse because they were viewed as, uh, as traitors. So their lives now involve uh, trying to go to a community that rejects them or staying with one who's brutalized them. And so to say that they're victims and that others are responsible, that they're not responsible, is, is, is an important contribution to them as human beings and to the story of what, what happened. It also, and, and this, in this I sound like the prosecutor that I was uh, uh, before I took this job, I do believe in the value of, of a lesson well taught, of a prosecution which sends a message that if you do the crime, there's at least the possibility that you'll have to do the time. Of course, we know that the law, even in the most well-ordered societies, even in those that have the best and most effective justice systems and the fairest trials, uh, does not result in every criminal being charged and every guilty person convicted, uh, and it doesn't prevent all crimes. But uh, the message that there can be consequences uh, can make a difference. Uh, certainly as I got to know the perpetrators of these crimes, sitting across the courtroom from them or sitting in the jailhouse sometimes with their lawyers trying to convince them to plead guilty and to cooperate, uh, or speaking to the informants who told us uh, uh, where we could find the witnesses and the information or the resources uh, that had been hidden. Um, I came to understand that, uh, as, as I think everyone that studied these crimes realize, is that uh, mass murder, mass rape, mass mutilation um, are not acts of atavistic and spontaneous violence. Sometimes one picks up and reads, you know, inter-ethnic violence broke out, continued for days, and you say, uh, uh, crazy people uh, fighting out ancient hatreds. 
somehow in some spontaneous way because of some event that provoked them. Um, that kind of thing might happen for a few hours, even for a day. But these atrocities are organized. These forces are unleashed for a purpose, uh, to gain power, to hold power. Uh, it, it's effective to demonize a particular group, to say to a society that may have an interest, uh, a history of conflict, perhaps almost forgotten with a particular minority, that it's their fault. It's not yours, it's not mine, is a strategy that works. And we see small elements of it in, in the way politics is sometimes played, even in, 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 in more developed societies. Uh, but uh, in these conflict zones, leaders make the decision. They enlist the militia. They mobilize uh, the, the forces. They train the people to kill and to maim. They deploy them, supply them, incite them, and, and use them uh, to gain or to maintain power. And the decisions are made by people who are intelligent, as, uh, and perhaps more so than most of us, uh, who've gained power in, in very trying and difficult situations, who constantly are calculating advantages and disadvantages, and, and sending a message to them that there are consequences, can, in certain circumstances, change their conduct, affect it, cause them to, to do it differently, cause them to act in ways that don't result in the destruction of, of human life and limb. As I noted earlier in Jackson's speech, he had spoken of the poison chalice, and the fact that once one began talking about justice, uh, people would become to expect it. And uh, uh, they would expect those who, who pursued justice to be held to the, uh, to the very same standards. And I think as we watch what's happening in the world today, we see the dynamic of, of what's been unleashed by the success of these international tribunals. There's no question that their cases uh, arose only in a relatively few countries. There's no question that there are some places where horrible things have happened, uh, where there has been no international justice and no possibility of it, or no realistic possibility to date of it. But what has happened, I, and, and I constantly deal with these questions as I sit in the State Department uh, with those uh, um, following the traditions of diplomacy, I often note to them that what's happened in, in international justice, perhaps not from Nuremberg, but certainly in the last 15 years as these tribunals have come on the scene, has created probably one of the most dynamic and almost unpredictable factors uh, in, in the international system. And almost every question that we deal with these days uh, the question of, of whether there's some possibility that a leader might be held to trial and that might prevent him from seeking refuge in this country or that country. Uh, the consequences that, that may be out there, the call for, for justice for the crimes, uh, if not committed recently, those committed in the past, enters into, uh, into the equation of, of our thinking. But I think the question for us now is, is, is to look at What's happening as, as tribunals, like the Rwanda Tribunal, uh, 
and the Yugoslavia Tribunal, they're closing their doors. They're finishing their work. They've been directed by the Security Council to, uh, to tie it up. They've sat long. Trials have been long and complex. Too many individuals, perhaps at too low a level, have been prosecuted. And, and uh, the UN Security Council, uh, at the end of just this last year, has established basically a residual mechanism to, uh, uh, to begin the closing of, of those tribunals. Um, and then as I mentioned, the Taylor trial uh, uh, in that tribunal is, is indeed the last case, and with a judgment expected to be rendered in his case this summer and an appeal by next winter, uh, that will conclude the work of, of that institution. At the same time, um, a new court, the International Criminal Court, has come into being uh, without U.S. participation or membership, uh, with 114 countries now in membership. It includes all 27 in the European Union, every country in, uh, in South America, but it doesn't include the United States, or Russia, or China, or India, or Pakistan, or um, Israel, or any Middle East country except Jordan. And its warrants, thus far it's issued 14 warrants, and only five of them have resulted in, in arrests. And there is a perception that perhaps this is particular experiment in international justice um, is, is running out of gas. That, uh, that the expectation of bringing leaders to, to justice may be too inconvenient, too challenging, too difficult, too, too disruptive of the powers that be uh, to continue to be effective. At the same time, uh, because of what's been established, because of the expectations because of the work of victims groups and grassroots organizations and civil society across the world, there's increasing demand for justice, particularly at the level closest to the uh, affected communities. What then does the future hold? What can it hold uh, in a world uh, which is still a world of states, where there is no power that can make one country um, do something that it doesn't want to do. Ways that perhaps they can be persuaded, but no way to compel it. And I think as, as, as I've spent the last 18 months and so much of it on the road and dealing with the challenges, I think that, that the seeds that have been planted by international justice are, are in, in a some sense showing their greatest vitality at the grassroots. That in each country there's an expectation that there needs to be justice there. That uh, where the victims are, where the perpetrators have committed these crimes, uh, there needs to be, at least at the very minimum, a process to tell and to reveal the truth. And so as as I deal with this process going forward, I find myself often on the road in places where the prospect of, of prosecution of, of, of leaders may seem like a very far-off thing, but where the prospect of perhaps just revealing the facts 
of finding where the bodies are buried, and how many died, and where they died, and what happened, uh, is something that everyone demands and that you can build support around. And perhaps with that support, build something more in the future. So uh, in this last year, I've been in Kyrgyzstan, where there, were, there was this horrible situation of Kyrgyz and, and Uzbeks, um, substantially and dramatically larger numbers of Uzbeks murdered in cold blood and near Ash and Jalalabad in May and June of, of, of 2010. And even though that's a country that was formerly part of the Soviet uh, Union, is on the border of China, we managed to get an international commission of inquiry established, and a report will issue Monday to the government and be published in, in, in three weeks that will describe exactly what happened. The government's cooperated to the, thus far, and I salute President Odebayeva for her cooperation. That'll be a tough report. It'll be difficult for that society to, to work and to go forward and, and to respond to, to the truth because everyone's been spreading information that's not true. Uh, but it's a start. Um, in Burma, an even tougher situation because there's no prospect of cooperation by the government, even with an election that, uh, that finally happened, uh, uh, which the military government uh, controlled with an iron fist and delivered 81% of the seats uh, uh, to its people, uh, and a military leader from the government uh, uh, taking the presidency. It's, uh, it's nonetheless uh, still established a Supreme State Council with the former President Than Shui in control of everything. Uh, hard to imagine that there could be much hope of government cooperation there. I was on the border of Burma and Thailand uh, for three days last month, a meeting with refugees that uh, some would cross the border uh, 20 years ago, some would cross the border 20 days ago. And two million have crossed that border. And they describe continuing and ongoing atrocities against, uh, against ethnic civilians in the various peripheral provinces of, of Burma. And we're pressing there for an international commission of inquiry and trying to build support around the world to, uh, to have a commission that at least will record what happened and send a signal. Indeed, I asked everybody that I saw, what should we do? And they said, have to have a commission of inquiry. And I said, what good will that do? I said, well, at least they'll know the world is watching. At least they'll know uh, that uh, when they murder and they rape and they do these things, uh, that it matters, and that there's some prospect of justice in the future, and that may save lives. That's, uh, that's in some of the most challenging places. In others, uh, we're working very hard to, to build courts uh, at the local level. Uh, I've been five times to the Democratic Republic of Congo in the last 18 months. Uh, that's a country that actually has uh, four people on trial in the International Criminal Court, uh, Four of the five people that have been arrested are, are for crimes committed in the Congo. Three are now in trial. A fourth awaits trial. But still, we have these ongoing atrocities and a national system that's simply not effective in holding any senior or mid-level person to account. Um, the government has now supported the idea of establishing specialized courts with international participation in them, with international judges and prosecutors, not as a majority, but as participants, not a, 
a fancy UN court with uh, with a lot of four-wheel drive vehicles and sitting behind barbed wire fences, but but uh, a national uh, court uh, with with international participation and legislation to to put this into effect will will start next uh, will as they tell me be ratified uh, next month, and then we'll be looking for international support uh, to make it happen. And in other places, there's the demand for justice, sometimes not just for crimes that were committed last month or last year, but sometimes as in Bangladesh or in Cambodia for crimes committed in the 1970s. And, and the international community is, is providing resources to try those cases at the national level. And those proceedings, if they're done right, can be, I think, more meaningful uh, than those... Um, that those tried in, in The Hague uh, at thousands of miles distance uh, from the communities. But finally, it's important to, to note that sometimes um, justice isn't possible at the national level. Sometimes the system is so broken. Sometimes the capacity is not there. Sometimes the will is totally lacking to go after those that are responsible. And so the lesson that we learned in, in the former Yugoslavia, the lesson we learned in, in Nuremberg, is that you need an international court to establish that justice. At the moment, that international court is the ICC. Uh, the United States, uh, for reasons, and we can discuss this in the, in the question and answer period, has not chosen to move forward to, to join the ICC. But in this administration, we've decided to engage with it uh, to support the cases that it's taken so far, because all of them are those that cry out for justice when there's no ability uh, or capacity or will at the national level to prosecute people at the level that the ICC can, can prosecute them. And, and we're going to try to make it effective and try to work with that court uh, to make sure that it can achieve the promise of justice that's uh, been made uh, at Nuremberg and Arusha and at The Hague. We owe it, we owe this effort and this continued struggle um, to those who, who have suffered these, these horrendous crimes and have the right to demand justice. And we owe it to all of humankind to make the institutions of national, and if necessary, international justice, so effective that there's at least the possibility that it will deter the worst crimes known to humankind. Thank you very much. Thank you. Sure. Thank you, Ambassador Rapp. As we collect your questions, I have the privilege of starting out with a lead-off question, and I'm usually quite kind to our speakers, but I'm not going to be tonight. <laughs> not, not after I made the That's joke right, about, about Congress. the Congress, I know. Um, it's not a question about Congress, though. You'll be glad. Um, when we did our student session this afternoon, an international student in the Croc Studies, Peace Studies cohort asked a very tough question from, as the lead-off. And the question was basically, how can we represent justice 
from the, from the United States perspective without acceding to the International Criminal Court. And all day long I've been thinking about this, and a lot of you have actually raised this question with me for Ambassador Rep. So I'm going to start off with one of the things, kind of the elephant in the room question is, is what are the pros and cons of us trying to, to um, fulfill that debt of what we owe humanity in terms of justice without being a member of the International Court? And what, what is it about us that makes us think we're different, this American exceptionalism that also leads us to this American exemptionalism that we don't think we need to participate in international regimes like the court. Okay. Well, I expected that question. Uh, it's it's, it's uh, always a challenging one. And, and, of course, the easy answer, and I'll try the easy answer first, but then I'll, I'll, I'll also uh, take a shot at the much harder one, is that uh, the United States... Uh, in its long tradition of dealing with international treaties and conventions, is very slow uh, to enter into any uh, such uh, such system. Uh, you know, it's beyond living memory probably now. But uh, in 1919, uh, Wilson went to Paris and and got the rest of the world to agree to a League of Nations. And he came back and he couldn't get it approved in 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 the United States Senate. And and we see that that uh, that um, it's it's difficult even to approve treaties uh, that are in our national interests. The Treaty on the Law of the Sea we're now complying with fully, and if we actually ratified it, it would give us the ability to drill for oil in the Arctic. It would actually be in our economic benefit, but it's still a difficult sell uh, to get 67 senators to agree to something that, uh, to some extent, uh, limits our, our sovereignty. And even uh, conventions which have been approved by almost every country in the world uh, are very hard to get accepted in the Senate. Uh, um, Those of you that remember the decision on the juvenile death penalty a few years ago by the Supreme Court, which struck it down under the Eighth Amendment by a five to four vote, may remember the discussion about the the Convention on the Rights of the Child. And one of the provisions of the Convention on the Rights of the Child is you can't execute someone for a crime they committed as a juvenile. Uh, but the United States hasn't ratified. In fact, there are only two countries in the world that haven't ratified, and that's the United States and Somalia. And uh, I recently received word that Somalia, whose, whose legislature cannot safely meet in Mogadishu, but meets in Nairobi, has it on the agenda now to ratify the Convention on the Rights of the Child. And it may come up in the U.S. Senate one of these days, though it'll be difficult getting, getting 67 votes uh, for it. But I was discussing this with um, a good friend of mine, um, uh, Judge uh, Navanatham or Navi Pile who is the presiding judge in the media trial, the 34-month trial against the leaders of the Rwandan media that I prosecuted in Arusha. Thereafter, she's from South Africa, uh, had suffered under apartheid, had been on the South African Supreme Court appointed by Nelson Mandela for a couple years before she, was, uh, she went to the uh, Rwanda tribunal. Thereafter, after our trial, she was on the ICC for six years. She's now in Geneva as the UN's High Commissioner on, on Human Rights. And she's a very nice person, very tough, but very nice person. And, and when I mentioned this to her, she said, but you and Americans, uh, you and America protect the rights of the child a whole lot better than a lot of countries that have ratified the Convention on the Rights of the Child. And I thanked her for that. And it is true. Uh, through our own institutions, our own Bill of Rights, our own Constitution, and uh, the own system that we've set up here, uh, uh, and our system of justice, where we are 
um, very effective in military justice and in our civilian system prosecuting leaders, whether they're chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee or the House Ways and Means Committee or Vice President Agnew or whatever, uh, we, have a, we have a tough and effective system that we're proud of. And, and that leads Americans to say, uh, why, why should we be part of something where somebody else could tell us uh, what to do? And, and, that's, uh, and, and that will remain, I think, a challenge uh, in terms of going forth with, with the ICC for a long time. Um, that said, and that's the easy answer, uh, the, the, the answer from the point of view of this administration, uh, led by a person who is a professor of constitutional law at the University of Chicago, Professor Obama, uh, is that, um, that there are potential dangers to the U.S. being part of the ICC, uh, given the role that we play in the world, what former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright referred to us as the indispensable nation. Uh, we do have three million men and women under arms around the world protecting people from terror and atrocity. Nobody else, no other country, is, is, is as strung out around the world uh, as we are. And that makes us vulnerable. And, and so when we go to countries like Afghanistan and we're dealing with our own service members, uh, we certainly make them sign uh, status of forces agreements where we're not going to face justice in that nation's courts. We're going to face them in our own. And we think that when something bad happens, uh, people will be prosecuted in our own. But we're, uh, we're concerned that uh, because, as, as President Obama in his Nobel Prize lecture in December of, of 2009 noted, there are people in the world that uh, resent the power of the United States, people in the world that, that don't think the use of force, uh, which they're not able to exercise because they have little military force, but that the exercise of force is inherently illegitimate, uh, that we could find ourselves unfairly targeted when we were doing the right thing. Uh, there is certainly the possibility that if there was a warlord out there who was killing 20,000 people, and if we could be persuaded to intervene to stop it, and if 20 people were killed, a prosecutor could say, by accident, let's say, as we were protecting uh, individuals, and, and if you exercise military force, uh, there will be innocent who are killed unintentionally. You could have a prosecutor say, well, we'll prosecute the, the warlord, but then we'll prosecute the American major responsible for, for killing the 20 people by accident. Uh, that's the concern uh, that we have about, um, uh, about joining this court at this time. Uh, on the other hand, the cases that it's taken so far have not been cases of collateral damage or unintentional loss of life or the legal use of force, uh, they have been cases that involve the intentional targeting of innocent men, women, and children by a Joseph Kony, by warlords in the Congo, by, by rapists in Darfur. Uh, not mistakes, but, but the innocent, the soft targets, the situation that we see in so many places where it's so much more dangerous to be an innocent woman or child than it is to be a soldier. 
Those are, the, those are where crimes are being committed these days. That's what the ICC is focusing on. They cry out for justice. We support justice in those cases. The ICC statute says that it'll only take cases that involve a high level of gravity. And generally, even in war crimes, it says they need to be widespread actions. So it's possible that as this court develops and as we see how it selects cases and which ones the judges approve and which ones they reject, uh, we could gain confidence that this court uh, could not be used as some sort of political vehicle to, to target us. Uh, but that'll take time, as it always takes for the United States, as it evaluates whether to join international institutions. Thank you. What difference does it make to your efforts that the leadership of the Department of State, Secretary Clinton herself, is so articulately committed to justice for women? Well, it's, it's wonderful that, uh, that Secretary Clinton is, is uh, committed uh, to justice for women. I mean, I'm, a, um, I'm someone who's, who's been, been committed to, um, uh, for, for certainly all of my public life, uh, to, to, to the importance of, of, of the rights of, of, of women uh, in, in, in the political sphere and, and, and everywhere else. But... Uh, uh, what so many of us who've gotten involved in, a, in, in this area of justice have seen, uh, tragically, at a, at a time when, when in many parts of the world women are emerging into, into positions of, of, of leadership uh, uh, in, in societies at such great benefit to, to all of humankind, uh, that still in some places women are oppressed and, uh, and, and victimized. And that this the the business of attacking women uh, viciously as uh, through acts of sexual violence, if anything, in some conflict zones seems to be coming worse. Um, of course, as as I think the world woke up to violence against women in conflict during the justice that was achieved in the Balkans, and many said, well, of course, there's always been rape and war, the rape and pillage of, of, of victimized communities, and it's never really been talked about. Uh, in the Balkans, it finally was. And uh, at Nuremberg, which I talked about a little bit ago, uh, the crime of rape wasn't explicitly uh, in the list. Uh, uh, in the Geneva Conventions of 1949, uh, 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 the crime of rape was uh, was referred to as as a crime against uh, um, against the the dignity of the man almost I have to think about the the language uh, but it wasn 't explicitly protective uh, of women and it was through what we did in in these international institutions that uh, that, that vehicles uh, in the law were, were found to to prosecute uh, these 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 horrendous crimes. At the same time, in conflict zones like the Democratic Republic of Congo, in actions by, by the Janjaweed and, and the, their, uh, their suppliers in the government of Sudan, and in other conflict zones, uh, attacking women, raping uh, and enslaving women uh, is another technique for humiliating and destroying communities that proves to be effective. And we see, like in August of, of 2010, in Walikali in North Kivu, not far from Goma, where I was just uh, two days earlier, uh, we had uh, the rape of 303 individuals, about 260 of them uh, 
women and girls, also young men and, and later older men were raped, uh, in, in a situation where there wasn't, as there had been in other situations, a lot of killing and mutilation. It was rape. Uh, and, and I've spoken to people who say, who refer to these acts of rape as destruction, as, as ways in which communities are, are, are torn apart, in which one community or one group of militia basically humiliates and destroys another. Uh, we had this horrible act in, in Fizi uh, just four weeks ago uh, where a community righteously, uh, in protecting a woman from being raped by a soldier, killed the soldier. And, and then the, the, the troops came in under their colonel and raped 52 people and women in that community. Fortunately, those responsible are now being held uh, for trial in, in, the, in the DRC. Um, Something has to be done that's more effective. Cases in the ICC, and there have been some, alone won't do it. And that's why the Secretary and I are really committed to trying to make justice work in the DRC. We've been pressing for five high-level officials, a general, three colonels, and a major, so-called FARDIC-5, named after the Army. It's called the FARDIC, the Force Armée. Uh, of the Republic Democratic to Congo. Uh, we've tried to press to get those five individuals who were directly involved in acts of rape brought to justice. We've got finally cases going against four of them. But the perception still is out there that you can get away with this crime. And until we've really got robust justice on the ground, which we think we'll get with these, uh, these specialized chambers, um, the, the perception will be you get away with it. And, and then it can be effective in, in destroying and humiliating an, an, enemy, uh, uh, an enemy population. A tremendous destruction of, of, of human beings and of families and of community ties. And, uh, and so um, the challenge is there. And, and the secretary is, is serious. She was to Goma herself the month before I took this job and spoke with victims and spoke of her commitment. And, and I think her commitment... Uh, uh, and, and her messaging on the issue will remain strong, and, uh, and, and I'm confident that we'll, we'll use that leadership uh, to uh, make a difference uh, on the ground. Um, it's, it's what I work for. Thank you. Ambassador Rapp, let me present you with a small token of our appreciation for joining us here tonight, but it cannot express our gratitude for your efforts for justice around the world. I think okay. I speak on behalf okay. of the USD community. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.